A reading from the Gospel of John. In the evening of the day of the resurrection, the first day of the week, the doors were locked in the room where the disciples were for fear of the temple authorities. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Having said this, the Savior showed them the marks of crucifixion. The disciples were filled with joy when they saw Jesus, who said to them again, Peace be with you. As my Father sent me, so I'm sending you. After saying this, Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. It happened that one of the twelve, Thomas, nicknamed Didymus, or the twin, was absent when Jesus came. The other disciples kept telling him, We've seen Jesus. Thomas's answer was, I'll never believe it without putting my finger in the nail marks and my hand into the spear wound. A week later, the disciples were once again in the room, and this time Thomas was with them. Despite the locked doors, Jesus came in and stood before them saying, Peace be with you. Then to Thomas, Jesus said, Take your finger and examine my hands. Put your hand into my side. Don't persist in your unbelief, but believe. Thomas said in response, my Savior and my God. Jesus then said, you've become a believer because you saw me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs as well, signs not recorded here in the presence of the disciples, but these have been recorded to help you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the only begotten, so that by believing, you may have life in Jesus' name. This is one of our sacred stories. Thanks be to God. Belief is a tricky thing, especially to some of us recovering fundamentalists. To believe in something conjures up images of intellectually choosing some version of reality to hold on to and then closing our eyes tight to any other version of reality. When I was in seminary, I remember a woman telling a class about how she had recently evangelized to a Chinese student on her college campus. She said that he was doubtful about the historicity of things like Noah's Ark or the parting of the Red Sea. Go figure. But she was firm. I know it's hard to believe, she preached, but you have to. It's part of what it means to be a Christian. You just have to believe this. The word belief in the world of religion is just a minefield. It was no less a minefield in the early days of Christianity. News of the resurrection is spreading across the city, across the nation, and some believe, while others don't. Belief is, though, the goal of the whole thing, as the last line of our reading clearly says. These have been recorded to help you believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But when it says that, I have to wonder, is it really talking about believing in some kind of historical event, like believing George Washington was the first president of the United States? Is it really talking about 
believing in some unlikely thing for which there is little to no evidence, like believing in Santa Claus? Is it really talking about the kind of eyes-closed, white-knuckled belief so many of us have been sold? When the Gospels say this, do they really mean us to believe that a literal man rose from a literal grave 2,000 years ago? Maybe. But I've grown to suspect probably not. That kind of belief has always rung hollow for me, always produced more the fruits of arrogant certainty than open-hearted kindness. No, in reality, I suspect that there is far more to believing in the resurrection than that. In reality, I think that believing in the resurrection may be trickier than we think. If you had asked me several years ago what I believed when I said, I believe in the resurrection, I might have said something like, I believe Jesus was dead and then God conquered death and restored him to life. But the problem is, when you start to actually read these resurrection stories, that's not really what happens at all. The first scene in today's reading includes the disciples sitting around in an upper room, the doors locked because they are scared to death that the same fate might befall them that befell Jesus. And suddenly, in the midst of the group, there's Jesus saying, Shalom, like no big deal. Jesus didn't do that before. Sure, he might have spoken peace into the face of fear, but the story hasn't said anything up to this point about Jesus knowing how to apparate. He doesn't just waltz through locked doors, and yet he keeps doing things like this in the resurrection stories. He appears and then disappears with ease over great distances. He floats into the air. People who knew him for years will look in his face and not recognize him. They'll mistake him for a gardener or a traveler on the road. I thought he'd be alive, you know, scarred up a little bit, but more or less the same as he was before, like Lazarus. But something about this post-resurrection Jesus is different than he was. It's not so much like death has been defeated so much as it's been worked with in a new way, incorporated somehow. Jesus hasn't simply been raised from the dead, resuscitated and restored, but changed in the same way that a seed changes when you bury it in, a ground, in the ground for a few days. What springs up is not the seed washed off and restored, but something previously unimaginable and indescribable. Frankly, we don't know what Jesus is after the resurrection. The only thing we know for sure is what he's not, and that is dead. The tomb is empty, and he is alive, but in what way he's alive, whether he's alive as a spirit or alive in the body of his followers or a new thing altogether that somehow defies category, even the stories can't seem to give us a clear answer. When we see the complication 
in the story. Things get trickier for us. What exactly happened? Resurrection seems to mean something different than we expected, something better even. So when we talk about believing in the resurrection, we have to ask again, what exactly are we believing in? Now, there are plenty who would be ready to stand in that gap, offering us simple and ready-made answers to that question, free from any doubt. We've met these people. We know them. We've learned to be suspicious of such people. But as our story illustrates, we can only really ever start answering that question, only know what it is to believe in the resurrection when we experience it ourselves. After Jesus shows up to the disciples in this baffling way and then just disapparates again, they realize that Thomas wasn't there. He missed it. So they find him and they start to explain, best they know how, what happened. They experienced something so powerful and that led them to believe in something new. And they want Thomas to believe in it also, but words are a poor substitute for reality. You can imagine Thomas listening with furrowed eyebrows. You're saying he came back to life? Oh, you're saying he came back to life and can walk through walls now? This makes no sense to him, and rightly so. Second-hand belief based on words alone is flimsy, and it's cheap. So Thomas says he won't believe anything like it unless he can touch it himself. Let me touch his nail-scarred hands and see the wound in his side, he says, and then we'll talk. You know, Thomas gets a bad rap for his doubt. But can you imagine the alternative? I mean, what if he just said, oh, yeah, Jesus is alive again? I believe that. Great. What kind, what does that kind of belief do to a person? What kind of fruit does it bear? Many Christians are too easily satisfied with secondhand belief and charged rhetoric. And it produces the toxic certainty shared by fundamentalists. Certainty that must be defended with tooth and nail because at the end of the day, it's horribly fragile and it's embarrassingly inconsequential. After all, you're just taking someone's word for it. And what effect does that really have beyond a sense of tribal identity? Belief is only worth anything, only solid and unfragile when it is born out of our own experience when we have touched the resurrected Christ for ourselves. We can really only believe in the resurrection when we have experienced it for ourselves. So this, of course, leads to the question, how are we right now supposed to touch the resurrected Christ? How are we to come into this sort of experience-based belief? And I'll be honest, this is where things get tricky. And rightly so, because as we've learned, words and secondhand experiences, they're cheap. So anything I say now runs the risk of flattening that experience into just 
more words, just another belief copied from a book of platitudes. I cannot give you any one-size-fits-all answer to this question of how we touch resurrection because it is so subjective. But as broadly and as generally as I can, let me say this. We touch resurrection for ourselves when, in a flash of insight, we come into awareness of the life that is bigger than death. The disciples touched resurrection when, sitting in a haze of fear, they suddenly realized that the ground of their being was bigger than their fear. When they discovered a peace beyond their understanding. I imagine they continued to touch resurrection when, even years after their leader was executed, his spirit somehow continued to live on in them, using their hands in works of loving kindness and their eyes to see the kingdom. They touched a resurrection when they realized that God, the kingdom, Christ, the spirit, it was all so much bigger and more lasting than any ignorance, pain, and persecution. Thich Nhat Hanh, a Zen teacher, writes about resurrection like this. If life is on one side of a coin and death is on the other, then eternal life is the whole coin flipping over and over, on and on. When we can see the whole coin, the pattern of life and death and new life, then we touch resurrection. When we look outside and see the greens of summer fade into the browns of fall and the gray of winter, and we watch as all that death nourishes a burst of new and colorful life, then we touch resurrection. Whenever we see that life is bigger than ourselves, bigger than life or death, whenever we're caught up in that capital L life and our small false self dies in the light of it, whenever we find ourselves one with the immortal ground of being, that is resurrection. And that is worth believing in. To experience the resurrection means to touch for ourselves the kind of life that is bigger than death. So, you see, when we ask what it means to believe in the resurrection, the answer may be trickier than we think. But tricky does not mean that it is not crucial to figure out. Tricky doesn't mean that we don't still work and practice to touch resurrection for ourselves, to touch that life that is bigger than death, to, like Thomas, be dissatisfied with any words or secondhand belief. I want to close with the words of a New Orleans preacher named Johnny Youngblood who once said, every time I see someone go back to school, there's a resurrection going on. Every time one person blesses 
another. Every time I see a couple renew their marriage vows to start out on a fresh path of love, every time that a person forgives another and is liberated from the past, there is resurrection going on. Every time a person practices compassion towards the lost and lonely, every time I see an alcoholic put down the bottle, every time I see a woman leave a husband who beats her, there's a resurrection going on. Every time a feral kitten is rescued from the streets of a city and given a loving home, I'm looking at you, Susan. There's a resurrection going on. Every time I see a person freed from a self-centered life to one in the service of others, every time a person chooses love over fear, there is a resurrection going on. So Northminster, in this Easter season, when we tell the story of this mysterious thing that is so much bigger than death, Whatever we may believe or not believe in our heads, may we be a people that touch resurrection. May we truly be a people who believe in the resurrection. Happy Easter and amen.